I don't know. I, I like my filmmakers to break a few eggs, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. I, I like to, I, I'm not leveling this criticism. I'm just curious. <laughs> right. I, I'm sure that there are people who, who do feel that way, but I love seeing someone like come in and, and make it their own in, in ways, and, and I thought that it's kind of like a punk rock look at a Jane Austen novel, you know? Welcome, friends, to episode 220 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Autumn DeWilde's 2020 film, Emma. Okay, so our patrons voted and uh, had to step out of our comfort zone again. Yeah. We uh, are returning to Jane Austen and and uh, have actually already read her novel and now are talking about Autumn DeWilde's adaptation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was... It, it was a fun one to me. I, I had I had a lot of fun with this movie. And uh, thank you to the patrons for orchestrating a situation where I would watch a movie that I, I absolutely would have missed, I think, you know, barring barring somebody, you know, surprising me with it or something like it just it's not a movie that was really on my radar. Um, there's so there's so many movies that I don't see. Um, you know what I mean? That like this was not high on the list, but I enjoyed it. I had a good time watching this movie. Um, we talked about the the book extensively, uh, t- I guess, two weeks ago now in the feed, and um, it was a lot of fun to revisit the 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 world of Jane Austen, the text of Jane Austen, and um, she's an interesting person. But uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of her writing style at the same time, and I was excited to see what a modern take on this story would look like, and uh, I was I was pleased with with what I got from this overall. So uh, that's where I'm at. Where are you at with this one? Yeah, Uh, this is like the last one of the last major movies that I remember coming out before the pandemic. I remember hearing good buzz and it was one of those things where it was like new year, new movies are coming out. Um, You know, it was one that was definitely on my list for 2020 and then the whole world stopped. And I kind of because of that missed it. But then I remembered seeing it on streaming uh, during the pandemic when there was nothing else going on. And I, I, there was definitely good buzz. People were talking about it a lot. But had had you watched it before this? No, no, okay. but I hadn't seen it. But I did want to. And you know what's mm-hmm. funny? Like, uh, you get like targeted ads and stuff. I saw, I've seen this movie advertised to me so many times. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. And Amazon and, and many other like things were just like marketing, like buy it on iTunes, buy it on this. And uh-huh. so anyway, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. So we're going to get into the background of the filmmaker, but it was amazing to look at. You know, it was one of these like marvels of cin- modern cinematography where you look at it and like you see someone who has a background in art, obviously, but maybe not the specifics of cinematography because her background's in, in photography, but then taking that sort of mindset into the, the this medium, mm-hmm. I always find to be fascinating because I do think like the different disciplines uh, like tend to make for different artists you know i think like once you've made your background in in photography you really get used to the idea of being able to very meticulously um 
tweak the frame and create exactly what you want. And then seeing someone take that into the medium that's in motion in film, uh, I, I thought it was stunning. And, and this film looks amazing and some really great performances. Actually, like the modern take, it's, you know, I think I think some of the time people here, especially with adaptations, us saying like, oh, this is a modern retelling, so it's helping me to connect. But really, this this has so much influence from romantic comedies in it and 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 it's you know in a way that's kind of juxtaposed against what would be considered like regency era like england and and things that wouldn't have been the norm for the time but kind of updating it in, in a way that makes it feel fresh and like something contemporary but also a period piece yeah i i wonder how austin purists react to this because I do think, you know, I and I give Austin a lot of credit and I, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I just get the sense that she would be uh, scandalized by this movie a little bit. Wow. There are, there are just some things, you know, like uh obviously there's a little nudity in this movie, but there's also just like the way that they were kissing and like some of the ways that they were directly speaking to each other. We were getting the scenes that I wanted in the book. Remember we talked about there were scenes that I felt like Austin would pull away from and, and kind of look away to like keep those moments sort of private, even from the reader. And here we were right in it, you know, living in the moment and the awkwardness of it, the, the drama of it. And uh, I love that stuff. That's what I want. Um, and so I was into that, but I just kept thinking like, I wonder if Austin purists are like, oh, this is, this is kind of garish for an Austin adaptation. I want my Austin adaptation to be more subdued and in line with her text and her mood. Um, we talked about that a little bit with Pride and Prejudice, right? Like that final scene, I think, uh, Jen was saying was sort of controversial, maybe even removed from the British version because they knew the British audience wouldn't like it as much. It was like too, it was too affectionate. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely the potential for that sort of thing. I don't know if Emma draws the same level of criticism as as Pride and Prejudice does. I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, obviously very different character. I don't know. I I like my filmmakers to break a few eggs though. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm not leveling this criticism. I'm just curious. <laughs> right. I'm sure that there are people who, who do feel that way, but I love seeing someone like come in and, and make it their own in, in ways. And, and I thought that it's kind of like a punk rock look at a Jane Austen novel, you know? A little bit. I don't want, I don't want to like give the wrong impression if someone hasn't seen this movie. Okay. Though. Yeah. That's maybe a little extreme. You but know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not punk rock ultimately, right? Like I guess um, for, for purists might see it as like, yeah, yeah very, she's, she's pushing it some, there's definitely a modern sort of behind the scenes is the way I keep thinking of it, even though it's not really behind the scenes, more of like, there's a pomp and artificiality that overrides everything in these Regency romances. And it's the, the, the courtly manners, the tradition, the, the, uh, the way in which you're supposed to be respectable and sensible, right? And when you speak to one another. And then there's also the humans underneath. And I think these days we like to look back at that in like, we expect that people weren't as pure as they like to pretend they were. And we like to expect that behind, you know, behind the scenes, they weren't always behaving in the ways that maybe they were in public. Right? I mean, it's almost a fact, though. It's we almost know a that. fact. Yeah. But that is kind of the modern take. And this movie heavily leans into that. Right. Like it, you know, it's very much showing like 
this is kind of an act that they put on for each other, but behind the scenes, they're just humans. And I, I think it was leaning into that. And it does make it, I think, more relatable to a modern audience. Um, so props to that. But I, I do want to agree that, um, you know, if you haven't seen this movie and you're wondering, like, is this a movie for me? Um, it did feel like this movie is trying to appeal to the romantic comedy audience, but through the lens of this like classic piece of literature, right? So it's well-written. It's, it's actually pretty faithful in a lot of ways. Um, there are a lot of direct lines uh, from the novel that were on screen, which is always good. It's not, it's not like watching a Shakespearean adaptation where I felt like it was difficult to always follow what's going on. I felt like this was easy to follow what's going on. Um, and that's a credit, I think, to the filmmaker, Autumn DeWild. Like, I think she did a great job of establishing these characters, making them sort of broad in a way that they weren't necessarily necessarily as broad in the book. Um, just so you can identify who's who quickly, what their relationships are with one another. And then you're absolutely spot on about this movie being beautiful to look at. Um, it's not only that the the costuming and the sets are beautiful inherently, because they are, but there, I felt like there was a real care taken to take a classic fashion and give it a, some sort of little touch of something that probably didn't exist back then and feels almost more modern. Something with like the color combos they would choose, uh, where it was like you're, it, it's old-fashioned, yet it looks really cool. And it looks like something you could almost see somebody wear today if they were like cosplaying or something. I don't know, like... There was a lot of these, like, I'm not someone who notices, like, costuming all the time, but there was a lot of uh, times I was going, damn, that's an amazing looking dress, or that's an amazing hat, or there's something about it that is just stunning and, and, and captured my, uh, my, my focus, and I thought that that was awesome, and then, yeah, I, I think that is that visual storyteller background you were talking about, her being a photographer, because um, it all combined for just a rich viewing experience. Um, and yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. The characters were witty. Um, it's a very different movie than Pride and Prejudice, um, which is, you know, a grand sweeping romance and a drama. There's humor in that movie, but, but this was like much more humorous. It was, and it was actually very funny. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it feels like they're playing it all up for laughs a little bit, but I, I found myself laughing many times in this film. Bill Nighy as Killed Mr. It. Woodhouse Slade. I, yeah. I love him in general. Um, I think he's brilliant in a lot of comedies he's in, but he's also a great dramatic actor, obviously. But like I, I, I said last week or last, you know, the last episode that Mr. Woodhouse was a favorite in the book and damn, he wasn't even better in the movie. I don't know. I really liked him in the, in the movie. He was hilarious. Every time he was on screen, he was hilarious. Um, he, and it was pretty understated. He wasn't doing a ton, but it was very funny whenever he would do anything. You know, a lot of comedy comes from like the straight man, right? And he was very much like the way that he delivered these lines and he's, it just absolutely killed it. It's so funny. Um, I, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that this film was, uh, nominated for best makeup and hairstyling and for best costuming. Totally. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I think it should, probably should have at least been nominated for cinematography, um, but what do I know? I, I guess the, the main thing is I totally agree about that, though, because the costumes were incredible. And it, again, it's like a very fine line of like, it's believable that maybe this was something that you could have seen back then. But like, it's pushing it a little bit into that uh, kind of a, a modern flair for fashion. The things that really stand out to me, of course, costuming and hairstyles, like some hairstyles that I didn't even know if like they actually fit the time period. But they did have period like... Um, historians and, and like uh people experts that they were they were uh 
running everything by and the way that the wild kept uh having these characters sort of interact with art like mm. like a painting on the wall or a statue in the way that they're uh, like a you know a marble statue the way that they'll walk up to them and look at them and and sort of pose with them in, at times and yeah. the symmetry of it and then of course the landscape shots like our large establishing shots just massive wides um those are the things that really stand out to me uh but there's a lot of good like subtle i mean the color's incredible very like well saturated and and like the greens of the grass i also wrote saturated down but i, I feel like sometimes that I think people can can hear oversaturated, but it wasn't. It actually was like very tasteful. I felt well like. saturated. Yeah, like, like I said, the, the colors popped, but it wasn't over the top at all. It didn't yeah. look like Mad Max Fury Road as <laughs> no. much as I love that movie, but it's <laughs> yeah. you know the colors you really stood out, and and that comes down to planning in terms of what you want to be in the frame. You know, like I yeah. said, the, I, I, there are these perfectly manicured like lawns with like these these nice cobblestone roads and things like that that just and then the trees and it just yeah. it looked incredible so so we're going to get into the actual spoilers and, and talk plot but i guess before we get into that like just generally um who would you recommend this movie for uh if people haven't seen it i mean if, if you look at a, a film like this like a period piece of regency era uh typically drama this is more comedic than that I think this is made for people who do like films like that as a, as like a breath of fresh air a, a little bit. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people like you said that that find this to be a little too extreme in terms of like we said it's maybe not extreme, but maybe like a little farther than they would like uh, a Jane Austen novel to not go. Not as reserved and, and proper right. as Austen could be. But but I think that's what DeWilde was getting at was kind of trying to to break that mold and and do something new. And I I really enjoyed it. I thought like I said it felt like a fresh a breath of fresh air and. Um, I recommend it to people who who don't necessarily think that they would like this kind of thing too, because I think it does. It is modern enough and it has enough comedy in it, and and it's just a brilliant film. Like it's it's so beautiful too. So yeah, um, yeah, it's not it's not really my usual kind of movie I would watch, but I enjoyed it. You know, I had a good time. I would hesitate to recommend it to to like a lot of my friends who I know probably wouldn't like it too much. Um, but if you're open to trying something kind of different um, than your usual fare, if that applies to you, I think this could be a good one to try out. Um, I do think it was, you know, tailored for a female audience. I, I noticed there were moments, and I'm going to talk about them later, where I felt like there was female gaze on screen, which is not something I'm used to seeing because yeah. male gaze is sort of an industry standard, you know, for, for, for you know, which is much talked about. Yeah. We we talked about in Pride and Prejudice. Thankfully, our guest Jen brought it up uh, on that episode. But the the hand flex from from Pride and Prejudice. Did you feel like there was some attempt to rec- to to yeah. create those sort of moments in this Couple, film as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, it, this movie ultimately isn't as sweeping a romance though as Pride and Prejudice. And I think if you go in expecting Pride and Prejudice in a new form, you might be disappointed because it's not really that. Emma's just a very different character, and I think that's that's great. Um, and she makes a lot of mistakes, and there's a lot of f- you know fumbling around and and awkward situations, and and I feel like all the the awkward misunderstandings played so much better for me in the in the sort of shorter package of the film um, that that they it, it, you know it's there in the book. Um, it just I think it really shined here. So you know if that sounds interesting to you, I think give it a shot because this one was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, I liked it. Um, but let's talk about why. And 
uh, just how much I liked it and whether or not I, I, I'm, I'm going to tease now. Um, I'm going to revisit my my final takeaway from the book where I said that I didn't like that Emma wound up with Mr. Knightley. And I want to revisit that here and say whether or not I felt the same way or if that was any different for me. Before we uh, get too far, I do want to talk about Autumn DeWild. Yep. Um, she is a, an American photographer and film director best known for her portraiture and commercial work, photography of musicians, as well as her music video works. In 2020, she released her first directorial feature film, Emma. Do you have a list of any of the music videos she's done? I do. I have I have a list of many people she's worked with. So, okay. Um, in terms of photography, uh, for CD covers, she has worked with Miranda Cosgrove, Elliot Smith, She and Him, Jenny Lewis with the Watson Twins, The Raconteurs, The White Stripes, Fiona Apple, Beck, Built to Spill, Wilco, Monsters of Folk, Newfound Glory, and a number of other musicians. Okay. In addition, she has directed music videos for Beck, The Decemberists, Elliot Smith, Spoon, Ingrid Michelson, The Raconteurs, Rilo Kylie, and Death Cab for Cutie. Wow, that's some interesting sort of indie bands in there and stuff too. That's cool. I actually know some of those bands. I love to see uh, people come from music videos too because it's such a like a free form sort of medium. Yeah. Like you can do a lot and, and learn a lot as a filmmaker, I think, in there. And um, her portrait subjects include Willie Nelson, Sean Watkins, Ryan Adams, Sonic Youth, Tegan and Sarah, and Wolf Mother. DeWild's live concert documentary work includes The Flaming Lips, Spoon, and Arcade Fire. DeWild's photos have appeared on the cover of Spin Magazine, Rolling Stones, Filter, Nylon, Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly, and The New York Times. So how does a... Fi- how does a- I mean, I guess she had done some music videos, but I'm like, how does a photographer direct a major movie uh, adaptation of a Jane Austen novel? Like, it's it's cool. I mean, I'm glad she did. She did a great job. I think it has to do with one connections and two, uh, just like force of will and force of vision. I think like you, you're such a power. Like clearly working with all these people, they're seeing something in her. Do you know she? um, Did she write the adaptation, like the the screenplay? No, she didn't. That was uh, Eleanor Catton. I'd be curious to know what at what point they got together because where where does this vision start, right? Like, um, did she have an idea for an Emma adaptation and and spearheaded it, or did she know you know the the, the screenwriter? Or, or, I mean, I'm just curious. I don't know if you can find any of this data because it's very new. So yeah, I mean, from what I could find, uh, Perfect World Pictures, Working Title Films, and Blueprint Pictures wanted to do a film adaptation of Austin's novel, uh, and it began development in October of 2018, and uh, Anya Taylor-Joy was cast at that time, and I believe DeWild was attached as the director, like, from the get-go, so I don't know if she had a lot of, like, say, in the screenplay and was working back and forth with the screenplay writer, but... Uh, it seems like there wasn't any other choices besides her, as far as I can tell. Uh, so you also mentioned Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, who we haven't really touched on yet, but I thought she was fantastic as the lead here, uh, perfectly cast for Emma. She has that, like, I feel like she had to have a bit of that mean girl, um, you know, for lack of a better term, I guess, persona of, like, she's, I mean, Emma's, Emma's kind of manipulative, right? And she's not necessarily seeing that she she does hold a lot of power over someone like Harriet and doesn't see the danger in sort of playing matchmaker that can be that can be there when you're playing with people's lives and people's feelings um and a little maybe a little bit of vanity 
um, inherent to the character. But I think you, for this character to work, there has to be a core of like being really clever and ultimately like actually caring about people for you to like her. Because I felt like you could easily turn on Emma as a main character. And then if you tr- if you turn on her, I don't think you're going to like this movie very much. First of all, 100% agree. Anya Taylor-Joy is uh, incredible. And I'm really excited to see her in The Northman, by the way, which is, I think, coming she's out. She's been amazing in everything. If you haven't seen Last Night in Soho, like I she's fucking that. incredible in that, too. Okay. And she's just good in everything I've ever seen her in. The Witch, like, everything. So I, I think I mentioned this in the book episode that Emma was, like, kind of devious. And, like, she has that perfect energy. And I think it's a fine line to walk. But she's still likable. Like, you yeah. still like the character. Well, and she's stubborn, right? Like she she learns that she's wrong a couple times and and doubles down. <laughs> and and for you to not turn on the character when that happens, I think is telling, right? Like there's enough going on there to make us like her. Um, it's kind of a, it's definitely a kind of a a tightrope to walk. And um, you know, uh, credit credit to Austin, but also credit to the, to this film for doing a good job of pulling that off. Yeah, in the film. Something else we talked about last episode was just some of the time, some of the social awkwardness, some of the things that come up felt like kind of not contrived, but like they were it didn't seem like it was big as big of a deal as some people made it out to be within the story. And then people were offended because of this reason or that reason. But with with the performances that we got in this film, I understood much more the awkwardness of certain situations, the slights of certain situations, how harsh some of these things could be in a social setting. Um, and it really played up a lot of the drama for me there, and, and which may, you know ultimately makes the story more effective. Yeah, so much work is done with ex- facial expression, gaze, um, reaction shots. Um, there's so many little things that you can't do in a book, really. I mean, you can describe facial expression, but it takes so long to accurately describe um, you know, there's the use of metaphor and analogy. Like, there's ways to do it, but if you do it too much, it'll start to bother, you know, bog things down. And and Austin honestly just isn't interested in doing that. There's just not a lot of that kind of description. Really, by design, as an author, when you tell somebody what to think and uh, someone's doing with their face, you you have to give them the description, and you're giving them your bias in terms of like what you think the character. Well, should there's be two different ways to do it, right? Like, you can you can you can give if like you're in a close perspective. You can have somebody look at somebody else's expression and say that they looked surprised. Now, that is a subjective reading of an objective facial expression. Or you can describe a widening of eyes and, uh, you know, something with the lip. You know, you you can describe something that is a, a surprised facial expression, but you are you're relying on your ability to accurately do it. And then you're relying on the ability of the reader to recognize that you're describing a surprise face if you're trying to get across surprise. Not to mention you need to be efficient with your words and everything as well. So like an actor can deliver like a facial reaction that simultaneously is like three different things that you can't, you know, interpret. and And that was my next point is that like as humans, we're incredibly good at looking at someone's face and reading emotion. Right. Like at least most like neurotypical people are, are really, really good at doing that. And in a movie, you can do so much with like just a brief shot of an actor's face who's really good, like a master of their performance and, and can, can convey a bunch of different layered emotions. Um, and that is a that is a strength of the of the medium 
that I think really works in a setting and in a story like this where so much of it is pomp and artificiality, but you can't fake like, I mean, you are, but like when we see someone looking actually sad or actually happy or actually like nervous or embarrassed that is something we connect with immediately regardless of whatever else is going on we see the real emotion there um and that that works brilliantly in this movie that it's the kind of thing i i I keep coming back to like i think if i were to do another jane austen project um and i don't know that we would actually do this but i think the best way for me to experience austen would be the other way around I think it would be better to see the movie first and then read the book because then I can supply a lot of those moments and a lot of that emotion that I get from the film to the text because I find the text to be a little dry and and lacking in some of the emotional beats that I want. Um, But it it can be there if you sort of supply it yourself. I also think there's a certain level of patience that's required for a book like this too. And like with the nature of our podcast here, like we're trying to finish the book and and then like also like interpret what's going on and and have everything ready. And I think this is the kind of book where it's like you want to read almost on like a like a Sunday at the beach or something like that and just relax and like and really take your time with it. And and there's a difference between what's good for the podcast and what's good for me personally enjoying something. I think it might be better for me to personally enjoy an Austin novel to read it that way. But I'm not necessarily saying it's going to make for a better episode. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to get into some some plot? I think we're ready. Yeah, as we get into plot here, I just want to, again, give a shout out to Autumn DeWild. In terms of like a confident directorial debut, like this is like, yeah, absolutely massive. I agree. I'm very surprised that this was a debut. It didn't feel like that to me. Although I don't know me. I don't know what to expect, I guess, from debuts these days. But I would like to see more from Autumn DeWild. I hope that uh, she she does another another major movie like this. I'm sure with the success of this and like how well received it was, she'll be she'll be making a film. Again Did it soon. do really well? Because like you said, it came out at a weird time, and I was always I, I was worried that maybe it got lost in the 2020 craziness and didn't have a good theatrical run. And I kind I read that it had a budget of like 10 million, and I think it grossed like double that, maybe okay. like 20 25 million or so. So it seems uh, at least pretty well. I, yeah, I think it did pretty well, and and you know for what it was, I think I think it was well received, and I don't think there's any question that she's going to direct another film. Cool. If she wants to. So uh, into the plot here. In Regency era England, wealthy and beautiful Emma Woodhouse lives with her father and is often visited by Mr. Knightley, a local landowner who is the brother of her sister's husband. She searches for a new companion after her governess, Miss Taylor, marries and becomes Miss Weston. Emma settles on Harriet Smith, a younger girl who Emma supposes is the unclaimed child of a gentleman. Harriet's parents are unknown, but her education has been provided for. Emma learns that Mr. Robert Martin, a tenant farmer of the brother of Emma's brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, has proposed to Harriet. Though claiming she will not interfere, Emma manipulates Harriet into declining Mr. Martin's offer of marriage, much to Harriet's distress. Emma believes that Mr. Elton, the local vicar, is in love with Harriet and encourages Harriet to transfer her hopes to him, despite Mr. Knightley's warning that she should not involve herself in the situation. I thought it was notable that both of our main leads basically bear ass for the, for the camera. I mean, but but in different ways. Like uh, Johnny Flynn, who plays Mr. Knightley, um, w- the first time we meet him, he's naked. And I was yeah. like, wow, okay, this is, a, this is an interesting choice. Um, but I, I do think it establishes him as the romantic lead in a movie that otherwise focuses on a lot of other 
romantic options for our characters, right? And like he he isn't always at the fore. But I think by by leading off that way and showing his body in a way that I think is supposed to entice a female or you know audience who who would be attracted to to this guy, um, I think it's supposed to announce to them, hey, this is this is the guy that we need to be looking at, right? Um, and then it's funny because a little later, uh, Anya Taylor Joy pulls up the back of her skirt to like warm her cheeks <laughs> on the fire, and we don't see much. And it's not titillating, right? It's from the front kind of thing. And it's actually a funny moment. Like, I laughed out loud when it happened. And that was a different kind of scene because that was announcing, like, we're going to show the human behind the pomp. Well, like, that's what I thought. I kind of felt like both scenes were achieving that for me. It was like... I agree. Yeah, there is a little bit of that, too, for for him. This whole story is about, like, the, the outward facade that you put on and uh, how, you know, it's not all like that when we're in our rooms by ourselves and that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was notable, right? Like, I, and I was kind of surprised by both scenes. It's, and we're in a Jane Austen adaptation, which can be very prim and proper. And yet you have that. Um, but again, that that scene I thought was notable because it felt very female gaze, for lack of a better, better term. And, and, and it was just kind of gave me that that empathetic moment of like, this is what women have been talking about forever. Like, that they see, you know, just most movies are this, but the other way around, right? Like the camera is like lingering on women's bodies in a way um, that makes it feel like a male view. Whereas this felt like a female view, like a female gaze. And and I'm being broad, obviously, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. I don't know what my point is about that other than just it's refreshing, I guess. But you know what I mean? Like it's, it was notable and it, it gave it was like a teaching moment for me, even though I am aware of it. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is the kind of thing that yeah. that I'm not used to for a reason. It's pretty punk rock if you ask me to have naked people at the beginning of your Jane Austen. Yeah, I guess this, I guess that's kind of punk rock. <laughs> so uh, there's also a lot of recognizable actors in this film. Gemma Whelan, who plays Miss Taylor, is also Yara Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. Oh, wow. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I totally didn't recognize her. Like, she looked kind of familiar, but I didn't, I couldn't place her. We have uh, Rupert Graves, who uh, I most know him from uh, Death at a Funeral. And then after that, he was in uh, Sherlock, the Sherlock series. Okay, that's what I know him from. The the BBC one, right? With, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then if you've seen Sex Education on Netflix, which I recommend, it's a great show. Uh, there's a few actors from from that show as well. Uh, Tanya Reynolds and Connor Swindles are both from Sex Education. So in and you know that's somewhat recent show. So it's cool to see them getting film work uh, in addition to being on that show. Uh, yeah, just overall like surprising surprising cast. Not 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 like a bunch of A listers, but a few recognizable faces. I think all of those people, for the most part, I recognized from television and then to see them in Emma in this film uh, was really fun. And I, I, you know, I thought the cast was pretty incredible overall. One thing that struck me about this movie is I was surprised by the way that the, I guess the score, I don't know, maybe there was more of a score than I'm thinking of. In fact, I know there was, but there was, there was an attempt to keep coming back to this sort of chorus gospel kind of gospel yeah like church singing throughout the movie um and i i know like the church was an important part of the movie like going to church was something that happened a few times but what was your like why do that what was the what was the purpose of that was that just to establish the role that that sort of played in their lives or or maybe performance because we definitely get some musical performances here Singing was like a common parlor thing that would happen. Right. 
So I think it comes back a little bit to DeWild wanted to invigorate. This is the kind of thing that, the, that these characters would do at the time. And it's kind of against, you know, it's very proper and reserved. It's a very, like, that's that sort of auditorium, if you will, is yeah. it, when you're in church, it's it's that. And I think a lot of this movie pushes against that in ways. Um, and then, yeah, to go to speak to the performances, uh, singing and a lot of that is associated with church. And overall, I think uh, church a lot of times has been bent to the will of, of men and people in general to be sort of a statusy thing, right? Like I go to church, I'm better than you. I wear this at church. I, I'm so pro- proper and I'm doing the right things and, and using that almost as a weapon in like a social setting. Oh, we were talking about that in If Bill Street Could Talk. Yeah, was the last time that came up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're 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 touching on it. There was a little bit of that for sure, because a lot of those scenes about like the decorum of the church, right, and like when it was okay to speak and where people sat, I felt like was very important. Right, uh, there was a lot of that. Notably, I, I did want to say you you mentioned the performances in the parlor and the piano playing and that kind of stuff. All of those performances were like legit. They were really? all done by the actors and and performers that were in the film. Even the uh, the shredding that we saw from uh, from Jane on, on the pianoforte. From <laughs> yeah. what I read, everything, uh, I, I, all the performances were real. Well, she's she's talented because that was <laughs> I, I thought fun, that was that was a funny scene too. I know we're we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit as far as plot goes, but um, here at the beginning, I, I'll just say that uh, I, I was immediately noticing. Yellow seemed to be a, like a, a main color they kept coming back to with Emma. But then also I noticed that Knightley was wearing a lot of yellow as well. It would be like a, like a usually kind of a warmer, more golden color. Um, a lot of his coats were kind of yellow or his hat would be kind of that way. And I felt like there was an attempt to sort of link them in our, in our like subconsciously link the two characters through the use of color. Um, and I wonder if that was a deliberate... I expect it was. It was something yeah, if, if you're asking if it's deliberate, 100%. Well, if, if that was the goal. Right. Of course, the, the costuming is deliberate, but were they? Yeah. I think they were. I think they were trying to link the two subconsciously for the viewer. Right. I was doing some reading about color theory recently, and um, that has me thinking about, like, any time a color is chosen for a character in a film, there's a, the, you have to be thinking of what that color represents. And, like, yeah. um, I think yellow represents, like, brightness and you know like uh you know a light in the room happiness sunshine that kind of thing so maybe that's that's yeah. something that they're trying to get at it's definitely like a it's 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 a loud color right it's it, like and like it fits emma like it, she's she's the center of attention often and um yeah there's definitely also like an energy to it so i can see that I, I think the first time i really started thinking about color theory um was doing deep dives into breaking bad stuff um, because Vince Gilligan does tons of stuff with color, but what's funny is he like goes against a lot of convention about like what a certain color should mean. He'll just like decide to make it mean something else to him. Like he's like, oh, I think red means joy or something. And like, he'll like find some weird thing and then he'll like consistently use it to represent this other thing that is like his imagining of what this color means. It's just funny how that can work too. As long as you're consistent and you kind of show it to mean a certain thing, you can kind of sort of, uh, you know, bulk against or push up against the common wisdom of what a color might mean. Yeah. Uh, with that reading that I was doing, um, it was interesting to note that like each color basically has 
to, to different, almost like opposing uh, ways that you can go with the color. Like, so oh. the color yellow could be representative of like happiness and, Madness. and that kind of thing. Or it could right? be like uh, cowardice. Cowardice. Okay, I could see that. I always, I always thought madness, like ins- like literally insanity. Yellow was yeah. was kind of the I mean Yellow King and like all this yeah. stuff. So yeah, interesting. Anyway, that that's maybe getting a bit in the weeds, but I think it's I mean color is so important to this movie. I think it's worth talking about a little Definitely. bit. Definitely. I think there was some deliberate choices made about what colors characters were wearing um, to to affect different moods and and um, you know to to affect different feels and <laughs> uh, different characteristics. Um, I also just have to like. The screen stuff, um, so funny. I don't remember that being in the book. If it was, like, I missed it. But, like, uh, Mr. Woodhouse feeling, feel, like, trying to, like, <laughs> have these two. There's, like, these two guys, like, servants. And he's, like, trying to have them figure out where the draft is coming from. And he's, like, there it is, the ghastly draft. And he, like, he's hopping up out of his chair and, like, running around. And then he keeps having them bring a screen over. And I'm, like, what is the screen for? You'd have them set it in different places, and, and, and uh, I love that that comes back at the end of the movie and actually ends up being kind of an important plot piece, but it's so funny, too. Like, there's another hilarious moment where they're, I think, uh, Knightley and Emma are walking by having an argument, and you just see him surrounded by, like, five different screens. It's so funny. So, I, I mean, obviously, to block the draft, right? But uh, yeah. for, for those who can't see, which is anybody listening right now, Luke also has a screen behind him oh, right that's now, right. so he's, he's attempting to block, to block the, the, the draft in his draft. house. Yeah, absolutely. You could feel it, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next part of this summary here. At Christmas time, Emma's older sister and Mr. Knightley's younger brother come to visit. After everyone leaves dinner with the Westons early, Emma finds herself alone in a carriage with Mr. Elton, who declares his love for her. Emma promptly refuses and Mr. Elton disappears for six weeks, eventually returning with a wife. Two much-talked-about relations of Highbury residents appear, Jane Fairfax, the niece of Miss Bates, and Frank Churchill, Mr. Weston's son from his first marriage. Emma grows jealous of Jane, but is entranced by Frank. Frank's arrival prompts the Westons to hold a ball, where Mr. Elton embarrasses Harriet by pointedly refusing to dance with her. She is rescued by Mr. Knightley, who asks her to dance. Emma and Mr. Knightley also dance together, awakening romantic feelings between them. Though Emma leaves before Mr. Knightley can speak to her, he runs to her home only for their meeting to be interrupted by Frank, who has rescued Harriet after being set upon by Romani travelers. Harriet intimates to Emma that she has fallen in love again, leading Emma to believe Harriet is in love with Frank. Emma again vows not to interfere but manipulate circumstances so that Harriet and Frank might spend more time together. I want to give a shout out to my favorite costume in the movie. It was <laughs> the yellow dress. We were talking about yellow that Emma wears. I think she's at the market. Um, mm. I don't remember like what they were doing other than just shopping, I guess. Um, but she's wearing this yellow dress and, and then the, she's wearing like a headpiece that is, has this really dark, rich black, like in half the, that's like half of it. And I just thought it was so striking. And even though the style is that classic style, there was something so modern about that, like black, and then the 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 sort of characteristic of that yellow that it felt very modern to me. It was very cool. Yeah, and it's also very bold. It's a very yeah. bold outfit, which is something that I don't know that people in Regency era England right. were who were very reserved. It would, would probably wear. seem like garish, right? Like, oh, so attention grabbing. But I don't know. 
she is very rich. So there's that like, yeah, maybe and maybe they did. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Right. I that if you're interested, by the way, and you haven't seen the film, uh, that's the outfit that Emma's wearing on the poster of this film. Okay, is it really? That's I did yeah. not know that. <laughs> I was just like I wrote down. I was like, damn, that's an amazing dress, an amazing outfit. Like I, I was, I was taken with it. Um. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about Harriet and Emma's relationship in the movie. Um. What was your What was your read on it, and especially as it compares to the book? Because I remember you repeatedly said how bad you felt for Harriet. Yeah. Do I think that Emma had Harriet's best interests at heart in this? Maybe a little bit more, but still, she she kind of treats her like a toy, like she's playing with her life. I, I still just feel so bad for her. The characters also played kind of uh, innocent to the point of like almost being a little dumb. Which I think she is supposed to be that in the book, but it's it's all the characters are a little broader. So, it, you know, there's a little bit of that in the book and they kind of turn it up a little bit here. And Mr. Elton is kind of off putting in the book, but he's like really off putting in this. Like he's kind of creepy and just weird and his facial expressions are strange. The the class system taken out of this, Emma taking some for the most part, taking care of Harriet and, and like feeling bad for her in in certain moments played better in this because I in the book it really really felt like she was just like a plaything and here I kind of got more of their friendship and understood it there was a couple scenes of Emma and Harriet together sort of not in their their you know like fancy attire and they were like practicing dancing at one point I think there's a point where they embrace um, and it seemed very genuine. There was a few moments where I felt like, okay, they are doing a lot to sh- to show me that this is a genuine friendship, even if Emma has been being manipulative of her. Like, I do think they genuinely like each other. I mean, and, and specifically, Emma genuinely has affection for her. It's not just amusement. Um, and that sold a lot. And again, it does a lot to make me still like Emma, whereas it would have it would have gone the other way pretty easily. And then in terms of Harriet, like not having anyone to dance with at the ball. Yeah. Um, that hit hard. Like it hit way yeah. harder. Well, Elton is a dick to her and it's, it's you know, so yeah, it, this this takes place after um, he's already got this new wife, right? So we've also gotten over the carriage ride, which was an important moment that I pointed out in the book that I wish we had had more of. We got more of it in the movie. It was very awkward. Um, you know, and, and you, you see Elton sort of snap and he gets out very dramatic and it was just a dramatic moment. And that's what I wanted in the book. Right. And then, and then I think the fallout of that scene is what leads to this scene. Like we needed that to understand why he's being kind of petulant here. Um, and, and it's, and it's actually, he's punishing Harriet for Emma and what, and, and the idea that they could have been set up, right? And and also he's punishing Harriet for Emma's, re, you know, rebut, like rebuffing him and, and not being okay with his advances. So it it is, it's pretty shitty thing to do. And then I love the way they, sh- the, the, uh, they showed Knightley showing up to sort of rescue her. And it was, they did a, they did a really good job on selling like, Harriet falls in love with him in this moment, right? Like you could see it on her face. It was pretty simple and she's, a, she's kind of a simple person. So, you know, it kind of made sense that it would be, but like, you're like, oh shit, she's head over heels now. And also Emma, like we get the perspective of Emma, like seeing someone do the right thing and seeing 
him outside of this. She almost sees him as like a brother, I feel like. Yes. And that was more yeah. clear to me in the film. Uh, and then this I th- action is the first time that I think we get like a, a, you know, chink in the armor or whatever where she starts to realize. Yeah. And again, it's like so much of her attraction to him seemed predicated on jealousy to me in the book. And that was one of the problems I had with it. And, and, and there's a little bit of that here, too. It's like she doesn't really notice him until all of a sudden there's like someone else vying for his affections. And then she's like, oh, hey, you know, now maybe I do like him. But in the performance, I also saw it as like, oh, she's seeing him as someone who's different than than the rest. Yeah, and- seeing him in a new light. He was doing something gallant in that moment. Sure. Um, and I, and my point was that I think in the movie, it sold me on it a little more. I, I, there was a little more chemistry in a romantic sense in general between the two characters. Um so I felt like that was that was building up the potential of that romance. And I feel like the viewers are more on board with that, right? Like they're they're wanting it. Also, Frank, I thought they did a really good job of 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 showing some initial sparks between him and Emma. I thought the scene in the street where they were dancing but not touching, and they even like there's like chairs between them at one point, and he's like he's basically dancing with her, but not officially dancing, because like you wouldn't want to actually do that. But because they're not actually married or whatever, but but this like this this fake dance they do, I thought it was pretty charming. And and it was kind of showing me like, oh, hey, you know, this guy, if I didn't know better because I'd already read the book, I would think like this guy is a potential match. And I think we're supposed to feel that way. I mean, like the first scene that they meet, she's in like that greenhouse and he comes in and her his family's there like introducing them. And right away, you could tell that there was like some sparks. He's also wearing yellow. I noticed in that first time they meet. And nice. So I think like subconsciously he's he's like kind of slotting into that like, oh, maybe this could be a match. Or maybe he's a coward. Yeah. You know? Who knows? <laughs> I'm just uh, <laughs> I mean, he, he is kind of he is kind of shitty in retrospect because especially here he is he's leading her on deliberately to try and like, you know, get people off the, the trail, I guess, of him and Jane. But like. It is kind of shitty the way he is. He sort of leads her on and is, is very flirtatious with her um, when he doesn't intend to follow through. Um, I do think that the Jane Fairfax thing, um, it's kind of funny. I guess here and in the book, I still don't quite get why she doesn't like her so much. Other than she just like people have expected her to like her. And she's like, everyone's always said that we should be best friends and I don't want to be. <laughs> I think it's just pure like uh, feeling some jealousy, jealousy and, yeah. and then envy and then also threatened like someone who's actually could could, you know, draw eyes in the room more than Emma. Yeah. Kind of thing. And again, that's not like it's not a great uh, no. thing for your protagonist to be doing, but I still managed to like Emma. So correct. You know, it's it's, it's interesting. I'm like, why do I still like her? Uh, because she doesn't do a lot of great stuff. But, you know, she does seem to have a good heart ultimately underneath it all. And I, and I think that that shows through in this movie pretty well. I think a lot of people can see themselves being naive and being young and being so self-centered and being this kind of person before you mature and realize the way you're affecting people's lives and, and that sort of thing. So I still stand by the fact that like there's a lot of universal like characteristics and themes in, in Austin's novels that I think people latch on to. So that ball scene, right? Like we had to have a big ball scene, right? Like <laughs> that's a, it's, I feel like a staple of an Austin adaptation. And um, yeah. we had, we, I, we really liked the one in, in Pride and Prejudice, right? Um, it had that very uh, elaborate choreographed dance. We have that here too. 
Um, there's a lot of sort of drama built into who's dancing with who. We have that a lot here. Um, it's a visual spectacle. Um, it's great. So, uh, you know, I thought that was all very good. Um, and paid off. I, I don't know if this... The most memorable moment for me was Knightley asking uh, Harriet to dance and sort of rescuing her. I think that's the thing that will stick with me most. I know that that Knightley and Emma dance together for the first time. Um, and that does start to sort of lay the, lay the foundation for some romance there. But that's not the moment that stuck, that stuck with me personally, even though like you were talking from this about scene or from the whole film for, no, for this, for the ball, the, okay. the moment of the ball for me was the Harriet dance. Um, I agree. But I do think there was an attempt. There was, I noticed there was a, a, a touch um, on her back when they were, I think when they were parting, he like kind of brushed his hand against her back. And was that what you were talking about? About yes. like maybe like that was, that was one I picked up on too. Um, yes. pr- not, not nearly as, uh, memorable, perhaps, is the hand flex, but I do think that there was kind of an attempt. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I, I agree. I think it's not quite as memorable, but I'm sure that people, you know, caught on to that sort of. I don't know. I, I did read that um, DeWild wanted both Emma and Knightley to not be wearing gloves in the scene when everyone else was wearing gloves while they're dancing. So they actually have physical contact, like skin to skin. And she, like, spoke with the. Um, you know, historical experts. And they said that there's a little bit of leeway there because they did have dinner. And so like there's plausible deniability that like they had dinner and hadn't put their gloves back on yet and started dancing and then touch skin to skin. But yeah, apparently they should have had gloves on like everyone else, but they didn't. And, and, and that's like a, you know, subtle way to, to play up the tension, sexual tension and the lingering like sort of brushes and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it works. It works because it, it's starting to establish that romance, and I think we've 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 gotten the sense that Knightley has feelings for Emma, but she has seemed pretty oblivious to it up till now. Um, and I, I think this is starting to be the moment where we're seeing it. Although, admittedly, Knightley maybe didn't he wasn't very expressive of that early. It took a little while for I think Knightley to express at least to us the viewers that he felt that way about her i don't know i don't know how how, how soon do you think you were were we clued in to knightley's romantic feelings towards emma i mean we read the book so yeah, I, I was know. looking for it i think there were hints about it early yeah i don't think most people would pick up on it if they hadn't read the book okay until around this time until until around the time that they are uh you know she starts to notice him because of the dancing yeah i do think there's like some people will read some of the sort of fairly intimate arguments they have early as being kind of flirty yeah you can kind of look at it that way in a certain yeah. through a certain perspective so i want to read the next section here emma tries to spend more time with mr knightley and is surprised when he repeatedly ignores her on a picnic with their entire party of social acquaintances, Frank urges them to play a game to amuse Emma, who unthinkingly insults Miss Bates, leading the party to, to disband in discomfort. Mr. Knightley rebukes Emma for her behavior, and a humiliated Emma apologizes to Miss Bates, who accepts her apology without question. Frank Churchill's wealthy aunt dies, and he is no longer required to be at her beck and call. The Westons reveal he was secretly engaged to Jane Fairfax and waiting for his aunt who opposed the match to die. 
The Westons had hoped he would marry Emma, but Emma is only distressed on account of Harriet. Emma breaks the news to Harriet, who reveals that she is actually in love with Mr. Knightley. Harriet realizes that Emma herself is in love with Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley goes to Emma to comfort her about the news and reveals that he is in love with her and hopes to marry her. Initially pleased with his marriage offer, Emma develops a nosebleed when she realizes how upset Harriet will be. She runs off, leaving behind a very confused and disappointed Mr. Knightley. She goes to Mr. Martin to make amends, offering him a portrait of Harriet she drew herself. Harriet tells Emma she has accepted Mr. Martin's offer of marriage and that her father has revealed himself now that she is of age. He is not a gentleman, but a tradesman who makes galoshes. Emma congratulates Harriet and invites her and her father to her home. Though Emma and Mr. Knightley are very much in love, Emma is distressed at the thought of leaving her father alone. To accommodate her wishes, Mr. Knightley suggests that he join them there rather than have Emma quit her father's home. Emma happily agrees and the two are married. Yeah, you know, and I I liked that sweet moment of staying with the father because I liked him so much. And I felt like they did a good job to sell him being a likable guy. Like, even though he's like, he's funny and he's obviously very over over the top and dramatic. Like, one of the funniest moments, I think, was the Christmas dinner where Elton says, like, mentions something about snow. I think it was Elton, right? And every like, the, like, chaos erupts as as they realize that snow is coming because because the other daughter, the uh, Emma's sister, is also kind of like the, her father. It seemed like like very like uh, you know over the top like oh my god our health. They both have personal right. doctors that they talk to all the time and yeah yeah. Speaking of of moments that that were really funny, I, I glossed over this at the dance uh, at the ball. The Elton you know, after he like shuns Harriet, there's the moment where he's like talking to his new wife and she's like whispering to him. And then he very loudly is like, I'm not embarrassing myself <laughs> when everyone else is like kind of quiet. And and I just love that moment. Cause like he's, he is that kind of person. Yeah. Like, you can tell, you can tell he's the type to like raise his voice and, and like make a scene, even though he's clearly embarrassing himself. And there, you know, they did a good job with uh, his new wife too, of explaining why she was sort of trampling all over the norms and the manners. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like it was there, but like there was even there was a moment where Emma says like, oh, calling him nightly and calling him Mr. E and like how like for like how familiar that is. And I, I felt like it was it, it's nice to like kind of explain that because that was something that kind of went over my head too reading it. And it wasn't until like I was reading some like descriptions of it. I'm like, oh, I guess she was kind of, you know, not not well mannered. And if you really are familiar with the manners of the of the time, you know that. But like I'm not. So I didn't really pick up on it. Um, but I, I thought she was actually a pretty f- kind of her effect on the movie is to be pretty funny, even though she's not herself funny. Like, but her presence is is sort of entertaining, just at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. And she's she's meant to be kind of odd. Yeah. Which that that Tanya Reynolds, who plays Mrs. The, the newly Mrs. Elton, uh, she plays a character in sex education who's very like, um counter to the norm as well so I, I think it's yeah it's pretty pretty cool so so my wife pointed out something um she wasn't able to watch this movie with me because she was working when i was watching it but she um did walk in and, and like talk to me a little bit about it and one of the things she had seen it before one of the things she mentioned is how this came out before bridgerton which is sort of right. like the big on the scene like regency style romance but it's actually like erotic and and steamy romance 
Um, Would you call it punk rock Regency? And 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 also it's colorblind, right? It's because of colorblind casting, and it's kind of punk rock, I guess. And yeah. um, yeah, I, I it's this came out so close to it. I I don't know if you could really say that this paved the way for it, but. It is interesting that you get this come out and then like like a year later <laughs> Bridgerton comes out and is just like even more uh norm breaking, right? Um it's not actually not an adaptation of an Austin novel, it's an adaptation of a different novel. Um but I, I think it's notable, right? Like I I think that's notable of a trend that we're seeing in this kind of storytelling. Especially with the the success, right? And the yeah. the like Bridgerton's especially has like broken into the zeitgeist in a major oh, yeah. way. Oh yeah. So like you said, I think that that's that's here to stay. There's gonna be other others who want to play in that space. Yeah, potentially people have similar ideas, right? And culture, as much as we don't think about it, kind of moving us all in the same ways. It can it can, it can kind of manifest in similar ways. And different people who who don't necessarily talk to one another can start thinking yeah. about breaking norms in a similar way. Um, again, this isn't like super steamy or anything, but just the idea of like taking a Regency romance and doing something really different with it r- rather than trying to be super faithful. We got to talk about Emma ruining the picnic. Yeah, that what a what a scene. I, I thought that that landed so well. Um, I felt so bad for Mrs. Bates, who they repeatedly set up to be like she was good. She was just right out of the book. She's she's kind of funny, but also like kind of a bore. But like you kind of feel bad for her. But yeah, that moment where Emma just kind of slams her, right? Of like, uh, you know, basically saying like, you, you, you're not gonna be able to stop yourself at three. When have you ever been able to do that? And it was clear that Emma didn't know just how painful that was and how much of an insult that was and how she wasn't being aware of like her, the people who were there, which I thought Knightley pointed out really well later, like the people who were present, who she was sort of embarrassing her in front of. Um, and I think that that was also, that's an important moment for Emma because we need to see her actually apologize and we need to see her actually learn from that experience and, and feel like she changed at least a little. And I, and I, and I think I, I did feel that here. So I thought that yeah. was, that was very well done. So I, I love two things about this. One is that like yeah like you said this is emma's arc right is for her to realize that she can't be as self-centered and and not realizing how she's affecting other people uh but when she brings the apology to mrs bates the way that mrs bates is like the epitome of like leading by example and being the bigger person and saying like i i don't know just the grace that she had because it was a it was a private apology when it was a public shaming really and then she just like took it on the chin and basically was just like i thank you for apologizing and it's not this like grand apology everyone knows what's been said it's gonna stay it's gonna stay in their minds but the way that she 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 did that clearly meant a lot to emma and that also helps emma's growth right is seeing someone this mature seeing someone who knows how to handle like these kinds of situations as much as they hurt and suck you, you know you don't you don't have to harbor hate or anything like that. She, she like very quickly moves on and says like, Emma, when are you, when are you not like so gracious or whatever she says to her? And I just thought that that was like a really cool way of like, you know, stomping out hate or whatever. Well, it's another moment of Emma realizing she's been kind of wrong about somebody. Like she's completely written off Mrs. Bates. She finds her to be completely boring and not worth her time. And that's a very harsh thing 
And it's not, you know, I think in this moment she realizes that she's a human being with feelings. She's not just this sort of caricature I've made her out to be in my mind. And we've seen that repeatedly with Emma where she makes a snap judgment about somebody. Like, think about, like, how she just completely discounted um, the original farmer suitor of Harriet, whose name I'm forgetting now. Um, a lot of Mr. Somebodies. Um, <laughs> uh, Robert, Mr. Robert Martin. Um, Mr. George R. R. Martin. Mr. Martin. George R. R. Martin, no. Um, she writes him off completely, doesn't even talk to him, um, but just because she knows he's a farmer, basically. And she's like, no. You know, and, like, she, she, she totally makes these snap judgments about people. Um, and I think she's learning a lesson here about that. Um, but also she's a very clever character who has a very sharp wit and a way with words. And she is unafraid to speak and to be the center of attention and to talk very directly with people and play with them. And there, there is a danger inherent to being that kind of person. And so I think all the people who are watching this movie who have ever felt like they are this person or they at times can feel like they can kind of be this kind of person. And I will lump myself in here. Like I, I am not, I'm a weird mix between being like an extrovert and introvert, but there are situations where I'm around certain people who I'm comfortable with, or I'm around with people who are like into the same kind of things. Like I think about going to cons and stuff like, I, I, I can be very personable and I, and I talk a lot and I, you know, can be kind of confident and, and engage in conversation in a way that is very loose and, and free, but it is a danger, right? And like this kind of thing where you sometimes say something without thinking about how it's going to land or who it's going to land with, I think it's an important lesson for anybody who who could potentially see themselves in a situation like this. So I like, it's like, it's a subtle thing, but I think it's a real danger for people who do kind of pride themselves on being witty and like talking and like, just like, you know, throwing out little sarcastic comments here or there and expecting it to be cool. And, and every now and then it can actually genuinely hurt somebody. And, and it's good to remember that. Yeah, totally agree. Good scene. And then what about that nosebleed? Huh? Like, yeah, we got it. That's honestly, you know, that's the, the one of the most memorable scenes to me. Yeah. Like, I don't remember that in the book. It, did I miss it? Did that happen no. in the book? Okay. Yeah, it's on the book. I didn't think so. So her nose just starts bleeding out of the blue. And I was like, whoa, what's happening here? And it, it felt almost kind of anime to me. But in anime, it always means like someone's like corny or something is when their nose bleeds, right? Usually. Um, <laughs> yeah, it can mean a few things. Yeah. It's some sort of trope in that, you know, media, right? Well, and it wasn't something I was used to seeing, like someone just having a random nosebleed and not having it be like, oh, they have a disease and they're now they're dying. Like usually it's it mean like usually when you see something like that, it's like the character has an aneurysm in the next scene or is about to pass out. Yeah, it's scary. You know, right? so you, yeah. and so I kept being like, Oh, is she okay? What's going on? Um, but it was just apparently like an emotional nosebleed she had in 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 uh, relation to this news because she was thinking about Harriet. And I do like that she immediately thought of her friend. As much as she was like into this, like, uh, oh, I'm glad that he actually likes me. She immediately thought of Harriet and like, oh, God, she's going to be so hurt. And once again, that was kind of front and center for her more than anything else. And like, I give her props for that. I think that was like if she had been like, fuck Harriet, I don't care in this moment. It would have it would have been a lot less, um, you know, cool. <laughs> so I didn't know what to make of it, really, when I when I watched the film, I th I. 
I think I got the gist of it is like she it's a stressful situation and she's having a nosebleed. It's not a very common thing to happen. But uh, when I was reading after the fact, uh, I saw that director Autumn DeWild often gets nosebleeds herself and spoke to screenwriter Eleanor Catton about including one in the script. There was originally a comedic scene of Harriet getting a nosebleed while trying to figure out a charade and Mr. Woodhouse having to be rushed out of the room so as to not be exposed to the sight of blood. (laughs) Uh, The nosebleed was later moved to the proposal scene. Coincidentally, actress Anya Taylor-Joy also gets nosebleeds and was able to get one on cue while filming. Whoa. She described this as a favorite moment of the entire shoot and a proud moment for her. So that was a real nosebleed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know for sure, but so, I mean that, that's what the that's what yeah. that quote seems to claim. So yeah, that's pretty like, amazing. So they have to get coverage. They have to get many different angles. Like, are you telling me that she's nosebleeding on command every time, or maybe once? Like, maybe once, know. and then and then it's prop blood after that, or something. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's that's pretty amazing, though. You know. Yeah, but but just overall, what the nosebleed does is bring that humanity to like this like emotional like larger than life moment. Uh, and it's real, you know, it's something real and, and you're not going to see that. It's the humanity behind the pomp, right? Like we've talked about. Yeah. You're not going to see that in, in, in most other Regency era dramas and, and things like that. So, and it really worked for the scene. It was funny. It was endearing. It, it, you know, I liked it. Yeah. And then the one last thing I want to touch on is the, uh, the scene where, uh, Mr. Woodhouse, who has shown that he does have some genuine sort of connection and an understanding of his daughter. And I thought particularly when he came and sat with her at the window and seemed like he actually cared about her feelings and, and maybe was a little more with it than he had seemed at other times. Um, but he orchestrates, I think, obviously, an intimate moment between Emma and Mr. Knightley through the use of the of the of the um, screens, <laughs> you know, put the screen here and put the screen here. Oh, are you be- are you feeling better? Uh, uh, you know, because it was always Mr. Knightley who was feeling the draft. Right. He's like, oh, Mr. Knightley, you must be feeling a draft. You know, it was never it was it wouldn't be him. It'd be Mr. Knightley who was feeling it. He was involving other people in his sort of weird thing, um, which I think is very true to life and, and hilarious. Um, but anyway, I thought it was kind of cute. Right. Like he sets it up. But then they, they kind of make out um, behind this screen. And, I, and, I, and this is another moment where I was like, I don't know if like this is this seemed all very intense. Now, was this kind of stuff going on? I don't know. Maybe it was. So maybe that's like a push to like include some of this. Whereas like, uh, I don't know, other uh, Austin adaptations, I don't think would show something like this. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And again, I think it's just based on the taste of the filmmaker yeah. wanting to change things up. Yeah. And it's, it appeals it, to, to us modern viewers. It wasn't that big a deal. But, you know, back then that would have been very scandalous. Right. Right. Yeah. You know. So you mentioned there was something you wanted to address again. Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, whether or not I'm happy with Knightley and and Emma winding up together here. Um, because in the book, I felt like it was actually <laughs> like a kind of a bad ending for Emma because I think she's not going to be happy in this marriage and eventually she's going to feel trapped. And um, I, I am not, I'm not completely divorced from that perspective. However... I'm willing to admit these characters had a lot more chemistry. Their romance felt more appropriate. Um, and they did a better job of showing a back and forth and a, and a, and a sort of a, a playfulness 
And I don't know. It seemed like they complimented each other in, in, a, in a way that maybe I didn't give him credit for in the book. Like he he sort of helped her with a lot of her issues, her her rougher edges, and 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 vice versa. So it seemed like a better pairing, and I, I was happy for it in the movie. I think it was, I think it was important for this movie to work. Obviously, they're, they're sort of the romantic leads that need to wind up together. It would be a very different movie to have it be like a. Uh, this is actually going to be a miserable <laughs> fate right. for Emma. I still don't know. But I, I guess the other thing is, like, there wasn't as much emphasis on Emma not wanting to be married. Like, she mentions it right. in the movie, but, like, I felt like it was very, it was, it, she had, a, like, well thought out reasons why she did not want to be married in the book and talked about it at length. And it was just kind of brushed over here. And it seemed like everyone was like, oh, she says that, but it's not true. And then even she kind of feels that way. Yeah, it goes away pretty quickly in yeah. the movie, I agree. Um, but we're getting to the point now where I think we need to do what we always do at the end of projects. We have to compare the book and the movie and pick which one's better. Well, I'm going to start off because I think I've I've sort of made myself abundantly clear, but I, I preferred the movie. i um not the biggest fan of Austin's writing style, uh, although I respect it, respect the hell out of it, honestly. But um, it's just not really my kind of writing that I enjoy. Um but I like this movie a lot, you know, um, of the two. I don't know. I think I'd have to maybe watch them both again. I might lean this way just because. Are you saying uh, Pride and Prejudice versus yes, Emma? Between Pride and Prejudice and Emma, I think I actually might lean towards Emma. Maybe um, they're different kinds of movies um, and both have a lot going for them. Honestly, good adaptations. I think I think this is another good one. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's it's a fairly easy decision. Ultimately, for me, though, I'm giving it to the movie. Right. Yeah, so I agree with you. I'm going with the movie as well. And I want to point out the fact that I really appreciate a well-thought-out cinematic comedy. And I think that this is that. You know, I think a lot of times when people think of comedy, they think of, like, lowest common denominator, lowbrow, sort of, like, common fare that's just, like, you put two people in a room and you hit record. Get a couple of comedians on there doing their doing their shtick that they do in every movie they're in. And yeah. this is a this is a clever, comedic, yeah. difficult film to pull off, yeah. and it and it took material that I didn't connect super super well with, and made it really enjoyable. A film that I'm happy that I've seen, a film that I really wanted to see, and was happy that it, it sort of lived up to like the beauty of what it could be. Just overall, I, I really enjoyed the film, and and like I would watch it again. Honestly, I'd recommend it to people. I think that it is one of those films that shows like okay, this this filmmaker's arrived as well. Like we talked about, like this is someone I want to see more from. Yeah, I'm gonna be curious to see what she does going forward. Yeah, and for all those reasons, I'm I'm sticking with the movie here. All right, it's a consensus. Uh, thank you again to our patrons who voted for this in our quarterly poll. We will be doing another quarterly poll suggestion. Uh, our selection uh, coming up in the in the coming months, uh, and then we'll be doing two more following that, so four per year. Um, the way to suggest a project for us, go on our Patreon, and we have a pinned post um, where you can just comment suggestions, and then make sure to like any suggestion that you agree with. You're like, ooh, that'd be a cool one. Like those. And then when it comes time for quarterly poll time, I will look and see what suggestions have the most likes. We'll put them together into a poll, and then our patrons only will be able to vote on like the top three or four 
and what they'll select what that next one's going to be. If you would like to be able to vote on that, you got to be a patron. Um, but that is also a good way to get bonus episodes, which we just recorded another one of on Andy Weir's short story, The Egg, and the uh, short film adaptation of that. That'll be coming out very soon. Uh, it should be out already by the time you're hearing this. So if that sounds interesting to you, we uh, discuss that over on Patreon, patreon.com slash inktofilm. And if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating or review on whatever podcast app you use. Uh, it really gets the word out there and, it you know, more reviews push people to the podcast and then we can keep this thing going. I love to see them. You know what I mean? Like I get notified when they come through. Um, even if it's not a written review, I, I even see like, oh, we just got another got another five star rating or whatever. So I'm always very excited. So make my day, make James's day because I always text him about it. We got another review uh, and, and leave us a little little review. And then, yeah, it does help give give some more visibility to the podcast. Um, and we would we would definitely appreciate that, especially if you liked us doing something like this that we don't normally do. That's a good way to let us know. Um also, if you'd like to connect with us on social media, we are at Ink to Film on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, so check that out and connect with us. We'd love to talk to you. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, here we are at the end. We are going to announce a return to our bread and butter, our our uh, typical fare, um, because we love it so much. And that's sci-fi fantasy horror, right? Like we're coming back to that realm. We haven't done maybe enough of that yet this year and we want to get back to it. So we're going to be doing a, a, a really interesting one that I'm excited about. Um, I think James maybe uh, is a little more hesitant about, but we're, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We're going to give it a shot. I'm open-minded enough, yeah. but, but we'll see. So we're doing Johnny Mnemonic, um, which those of you who maybe saw this in the 90s might remember. This is, you know, it's a Keanu Reeves movie. That probably hasn't aged super well, but it's based off of a William Gibson short story. And if you don't know, William Gibson is considered one of the grandfathers of cyberpunk as a genre, which is a genre genre that I love. So I'm ultimately I'm excited to just get into that genre because that definitely is what this this story is. And to talk about William Gibson, learn about him. Um, and, and hopefully that will be interesting to you. Um, you can, uh, either read the story, watch the movie, or just check it out and we'll let you know if it's worth your time. We'd love to have you back next week. Yeah. I'm excited to see some, some cyberpunk cause yeah. you know, I love Blade Runner, but we're going to see if I, you know, honestly, I'm more excited for the, the short story. Yeah. As I don't know, man. I, I remember in the movie, there is like a fucking laser whip. I don't know if you remember the laser All whip. Right. But I don't remember this movie almost at all. Okay. I, I, There's a laser whip, and that laser whip does some stuff <laughs> that I'll be interested to talk about with you next week. Um, and uh, we'll be following it up with uh, uh, some more movies in this vein as we as we sort of get back to our bread and butter. So we appreciate you, and uh, thank you for sticking around to the very end here. And uh, until next time, keep adapting. Yeah.